Good evening. Welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On August 19th, the North Carolina Supreme Court issued a far-reaching opinion which declared that two recently adopted constitutional provisions, one mandating the presentation of a photo identification in order to vote, and the other, which imposed a 7% cap on future income tax rates, violated the North Carolina Constitution. In that opinion, the court held that the North Carolina General Assembly, which authorized the vote for these constitutional amendments, were at that time illegally constituted due to a 2016 federal court decision, which declared that the General Assembly was unconstitutionally gerrymandered and did not possess the popular sovereignty necessary to represent the will of the people. The challenge to these two constitutional amendments were brought by the North Carolina NAACP. Already, this decision has caused an uproar by leaders of the North Carolina General Assembly and is the subject of deep examination within this state and nation. This decision was offered by Associate Justice Anita Earls, who was one of the top voting right attorneys in the United States before she was elected to the Supreme Court in 2018, and has been met by loud claims that the decision is partisan and is designed to politically benefit the Democratic Party. Tonight, we are going to examine that decision its history, expected impact, and whether it is truly supported by the North Carolina Constitution. Joining us for this decision is one of the lead attorneys who represented the plaintiffs in this case. We are honored to have attorney Kimberly Myers, who is the senior attorney for the Southern Environmental Law Center. So I wanna thank you, uh, attorney Myers, for uh, joining with us uh, this evening. Thank you, it's so great to be with y'all. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I guess I need to uh, just let our audience know that uh, I am one of the co-counsels in this case, uh, happily so, uh, but uh, needed to put uh, provide that information to you so you would know uh, that I have some skin in this game, so. To get us started, uh, for our audience, uh, Attorney uh, Myers, can you discuss the uh, work and focus of the Southern Environmental Law Center? Sure. So the Southern Environmental Law Center, we're a not-for-profit law firm that works throughout the southeastern United States. Um, we've been around for more than 30 years now. 
And um, we work in, in six different states in the Southeast and on a wide variety of um, issues, everything from water quality to air quality, climate change, um, wildlife, mountain issues, coastal issues. Um, but really what we focus most on is, you know, protecting the communities in the Southeast and making sure that uh, everybody has access to clean air and clean water um, and, you know, a healthy, vibrant community. And so increasingly over time, our focus has turned um, to environmental justice and that's a really key function and theme that runs through all of our cases today. Um, I think some folks are a little surprised and ask me, you know, what am I doing in this case, which is about voting rights. Um, but of course, you know, the way that people vote and the way that our democracy works has a really key impact on how our laws are written and enacted and thus um, an impact on the environment and on healthy communities. And so this work has been uh, really integral to the Southern Environmental Law Center's work on environmental justice. Well, I know that uh, over the years you have been uh, uh, actively involved as has your organization uh, been in actively involved in what is going on politically in the uh, state of uh, North Carolina. But uh, can you kind of describe some of the uh, history, uh, well, the pertinent history uh, in North Carolina around the uh, redistricting process that leads us into uh, this uh, particular challenge. Absolutely. So, you know, we've always had some level of gerrymandering in North Carolina, unfortunately. Um, but in the last decade, it really took this extreme turn where the Republican-controlled legislature, which came into power after in, in 2010, um, started to use kind of new tools that they had and the uh, supermajorities that they had to put in place um, what federal court ended up calling, you know, the largest racial gerrymander that it had ever encountered. Uh, and so in 2016, uh, the United States Supreme Court affirmed that North Carolina was a um, massive racial gerrymander and ordered that um, almost two thirds of the districts in North Carolina would have to be redrawn. The problem, though, is that as we know, litigation takes a long time, remedies take a long time, there's often, you know, motions that can be filed, there are ways that uh, cases can be slowed down, so even though it had been declared in 2016 that our General Assembly was the product of this massive racial gerrymander, it was another two years before uh, remedial elections were able to be held to um, remedy that gerrymander and actually get legislators from legal um, non-racially gerrymandered districts. So the question we started asking ourselves, and I know this was a question that Reverend Barber was also um, asking a lot was, you know, what power does this body have in the interim period. We know it's a racial gerrymander. We know that we've got Republican supermajorities in both houses only because of that racial gerrymander. Um, we know that this is not 
the will of the people. The Supreme Court has told us all of that. Um, nonetheless, these are the people in power. And so are there any limitations on their power in this intervening period? That was the question that, that started to present itself. Well, let me just, uh, just raise it because I, I, just for our audience, uh, you, you, you need to be aware that there are 50 senators uh, elected in uh, North Carolina and uh, 120 members of the, uh, of the House of Representatives. Uh, so when we talk about, uh, what do you say, two thirds of members of the House uh, was illegally uh, constituted and that 28 of the 50 uh, members of the Senate uh, were uh, involved uh, in, these, uh, in this unconstitutional uh, redistricting. What is, popular sovereignty that's a that's a kind of uh complex sounding term and uh people don't really understand it but what do, what do, what do we mean when we talk about uh popular sovereignty and how how is it determined yeah absolutely i mean i think popular sovereignty is so fundamental to who we are in the state of north carolina and really what it means is it's the people of North Carolina that have power. It's not um, those folks sitting in Raleigh who have power in any real sense. They only have power because the people have given them power. Uh, that's really all that this concept means. It's pretty straightforward. And so, you know, we have to have systems in place where the people give power in a way that is representative of the people. And what you have with uh, gerrymandering, and we saw this in the Supreme Court's decision in Harper v. Hall earlier this year, is when you have extreme gerrymandering, whether it's um, racial or partisan, is you're taking away from that idea of popular sovereignty because you no longer have a setup where the people's will is being accurately conveyed to those lawmakers. To kind of flesh out the, the racial gerrymandering to tie in what you just uh, talked about in terms of popular sovereignty, for those, because we hear this term all the time, racial gerrymandering, how does that go about impacting the power of an individual's vote? And so when we think about the General Assembly should represent the people, how does gerrymandering, particularly racial unconstitutional gerrymandering, undercut a person's ability to weigh in. Yeah, so you know, ideally what you have is everybody's vote counts the same amount. Um that that is, you know, one person one vote, that's what we should aspire to. My vote should count just as much as your vote. Um but what happens with gerrymandering is we know that actually in actuality um certain racial groups or certain socioeconomic groups have um, particular interests in common and, and indeed vote for particular parties. And so what happens with gerrymandering is uh, the, the party in, in control of redrawing the maps will use uh, a lot of data and a lot of tools to pack together the folks who have these common interests or who are from, um, uh, a particular racial minority usually. And um, by that way, they dilute the vote. So um, 
you know, there's really good tools online where you can sort of play around with this and, and do it yourself. But the idea is if you pack all of these folks into one voting district, then sure, they'll be able to uh, elect one legislator, but you have excluded them from all of these other districts. And that will mean that their voting power is um, significantly diminished because they'll get one senator instead of um, you know having a voice in four different senate districts for example so you talked about the 2016 general assembly was illegally constituted there wasn't a remedy until 2018 can you talk about the timing of the legislation and how that plays into the issue surrounding the constitutional amendments that the NAACP and other organizations were challenging. Sure, and by the legislation, you mean the constitutional amendment legislation? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Sure. So um, <clears throat> by 2018, uh, re remedial maps had been drawn, they were ready to go, and um, the NAACP and others had pushed for very early elections, trying to get elections as soon as possible. Usually we have elections in November, um, but they had pushed for earlier elections. The legislature had pushed back and put all sorts of roadblocks in place. And um, the court said, oh, we, we need to have these elections as soon as possible to restore that popular sovereignty, but we're just not going to be able to do it in a, in a meaningful way earlier. So we're gonna have to wait till November. So we knew these remedial elections were coming in November. The legislature in Raleigh was sitting there knowing its days were numbered. These were the last days it was going to have this supermajority. And so what they did was on their very last days in office and really just a couple of weeks before ballots would be printed um, was that they uh, voted with the, the, the necessary two thirds that is needed for a constitutional amendment. They voted in the House and the Senate to place these constitutional amendments on the ballot. Um, and so at this point, they knew they were legally constituted. They knew remedial elections were coming. They knew this was their last chance. Um, and so they went in with that full knowledge, with the full knowledge that they were not representative of the people of North Carolina. Um, nonetheless, they took these steps and uh, that's how we got the constitutional amendments placed on the ballot during that time. What 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 are the requirements for uh, proposing and presenting uh, constitutional amendments by uh, members of the General Assembly? Yeah, so Article 13 in our Constitution sets out how constitutional amendment can happen, um, and there are a couple of ways. Some one way is by a convention of the of the people, um, which has to be called by uh, <clears throat> the, the same two thirds majority. But the most common way is the way that we saw here, which is to say um, the legislature. Uh, two thirds of the house, and that's not two thirds of the members present, but it's two thirds of all house members and two thirds of all Senate members have to vote in the affirmative to place a constitutional amendment on the ballot. 
And unlike um, regular legislation, there's no uh, check by the governor. He does not have to um, approve or veto it. This is just a role for the legislature. And they have to go through this important hurdle, two thirds in the House, two thirds in the Senate, before the amendment can even be placed before the people for a majority vote. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we're talking with uh, attorney uh, Kim Myers, who is the uh, senior attorney with the uh, Southern Environmental Law Center and is one of the uh, lead attorneys in the uh, recent uh, North Carolina Supreme Court uh, decision that uh, vacated um, two constitutional amendments that had been passed by the uh, by the uh, by the people in uh, 2018, and uh, we're going to take a break right now. I want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, very important uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so uh, very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, conversation with uh, Attorney Kim Meyer, uh, who is the uh, senior attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center and one of the lead attorneys in the uh, recent uh, decision by the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court in uh, North Carolina NAACP versus Moore in which the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court declared that two constitutional amendments, one dealing with uh, uh, voter ID uh, requirement, the other dealing with a, a cap on the uh, General Assembly's ability to uh, raise taxes uh, in, the, uh, in the state. And uh, we are attempting to bring some clarity uh, to that opinion, as well as talk about uh, the uh, the history of it. Uh, starting out uh, in this uh, in this challenge, uh, you talked about this notion of uh, usurpers, 
Uh, that's not like cert that you get from the uh, ice cream parlor. But what what is a, a usurper, and how how does that uh, figure into the challenge that you raised uh, with with the court? Yeah, and uh, Justice Earls laid a little bit out of this um, sort of interesting part of American law um, in her opinion, but there's essentially three different types of elected uh, officials. The first one is just your regular elected official. They were elected um, legally. They have full power to um, do everything they want. They're just normal, and that's called um, de jour authority. So um, that's just straightforward. We don't, we don't need to worry about that. Uh, the next is uh, what's called the de facto officer. So this is someone who has been elected, but then it turns out that um, the election was actually illegal. And what our law has said is, um, well, <clears throat> Because we don't want to cause a lot of chaos, what we're going to say is from the time they were elected until the time we found out they were in office illegally, um, we're going to say that what they did was okay, even though they're not, they don't have this de jure authority, they have this de facto authority. Um, but from that point on, once we have discovered that they were in office illegally, um, they're actually a usurper. They should not be in office and nothing um, that they do is uh, valid at all. And so when we first um, brought this case, what we argued uh, to the court was that this General Assembly um, was essentially acting as a usurper body. Um, they had been elected under this um, <clears throat> cloud of illegitimacy because they were not rep representing the people of North Carolina. They were not carrying with them um, the power of popular sovereignty. And so what we argued was, okay, you know, for a while they had this de facto authority to act, but once it became clear from the United States Supreme Court that they were in office illegally, they lost that authority and um, that there should be some limit placed on actions they could take after that decision was made. Um, now we generally sort of stop short of calling them usurpers. Um, I think folks find that a little alarming because <laughs> um, I think it pr presents an idea, oh my gosh, nothing this legislature can do. It, it, is able to do is legal, who's who's in charge, who can pass laws, what if there's a pandemic? Um, and so part of what has always been interesting in this case is looking for where do you draw that line? Um, we know that these people are in office illegally. We also know that we have to have some system of government. And so looking for where that line would be drawn about what they can do and what they can't do with this illegal power, that's really what this case is all about. And um, you know, ultimately we drew the line in one place, the, the Supreme Court drew it in a slightly different place. Um, but the, the main result is to say that there is not unlimited authority for a racially gerrymandered general assembly to act. 
And that is such a monumental ruling because nowhere in the United States has any court said that there is any limitation on a racially gerrymandered uh, legislature's authority. So you mentioned that there are lines to be drawn and, and this is was really kind of the first opportunity for this argument to be made actually in North Carolina and I think kind of throughout the country. Can you talk about the position of the plaintiffs in this case in terms of where the line was to be drawn. And as you do so, and I, I know you will kind of contrast the difference between putting constitutional amendments on the ballot versus just kind of regular run of the mill legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is where we decided the line should be drawn um, or where we felt um, there was sort of legal authority for the line to be drawn was at this line of constitutional amendment. So what we argued was, okay, we're going to let this General Assembly, even though it's not representing the people, we have to have some uh, semblance of order so it can continue to pass these regular laws. But what it can't do is amend our Constitution. And there are several reasons for that. One is um, a structural reason it's very easy to undo regular legislation. Regular legislation passes with just a, a simple ma majority. So just you know, 50 plus percent and then legislation passes, it's signed by the governor um, and you move on. And so if, for example, you pass some law, maybe it's um, about an environmental issue, about a permit or something, um, and the, you've got a racially gerrymandered general assembly that does it, the idea is, okay, down the line, when we've sort of fixed our legislature, we can come back and fix that legislation pretty easily with another simple majority. The difference in constitutional amendment is it requires this full two thirds process um, from both the House and the Senate. So say you pass, place a constitutional amendment on the ballot, and then you wanna come back with a legally constituted legislature and fix it, you're gonna need a full two thirds in the House and the Senate to fix it. So the problem then is so long as, um, you know, the, the, the body that was in power illegally maintains at least a third or a little over a third, it's gonna be able to hang on to that power forever. So that was one of the structural reasons that I think really set constitutional amendment apart. Then the other reason, and Justice Rawls mentions this in her opinion, is constitutional amendment, it just goes to the very heart of how our system of government works. Our constitution is about how our democracy is set up, how power is divided and allocated among branches. Um, and so for an unconstitutional body to start messing around with those types of questions about power, um, democracy, it's just so incredibly problematic. Um, and I think that the third reason is there's just, there's no need for it. Part of the reason we're going to let this illegally constituted General Assembly pass regular laws is we need laws um, to be passed. We need a budget. We need things like pandemic relief or hurricane recovery or whatever it is in a particular year. We need a functional legislature. 
but we don't need a constitutional amendment. There's absolutely nothing um, which is going to require that that happen in a sort of swift time frame. Our constitution is supposed to endure uh, through decades. It's supposed to be a pretty static document and not one which changes on the simple um, whims of who's currently in power. And so for all those reasons, we felt like drawing the line between regular legislation and constitutional amendment um, just made a lot of sense. And I'll just add one final thing is there, there's also legal reasons for doing it, which is to say that Article 13 uh, which speaks just to the Constitution, sets out um, very clearly that it is only via the will of the people that the Constitution can be changed. And so that gave kind of this further legal reason um, why we would draw the line where we did. Now, you, you talked about the uh, requirement that two-thirds of the <laughs> members of the House and the Senate must vote to place a uh, constitutional amendment on the uh, on the ballot. What is the relationship of the number of gerrymandered districts to this uh, ability uh, of the uh, House and Senate to have uh, made out uh, this uh, two-thirds number uh, in order to put the uh, these provisions on the ballot in the first place? Yeah, so what the Supreme Court ended up saying was uh, was accepting the argument we had made, which is that this problem only arises if the two thirds in either the House or the Senate has been achieved because of the racial gerrymander. And in um, the particular instance we were litigating over, that number was so easily met because as we've discussed um, earlier, two thirds of the seats had to be redrawn. So there was no way you could ever um, get to a two thirds majority with the, the one third of seats that were in place um, legally. So for us, it wasn't a close call, but I think um, down the line, part of why we uh, wanted to make that clear and why the court made that clear is this isn't a situation where maybe you have one or two illegally gerrymandered um, districts and maybe just a couple of seats that need to be redrawn. Um, but you've got a constitutional amendment that passes overwhelmingly with 80% of, of, of senators and House members voting for it. In that instance, the fact that you've got this kind of tiny little bit of racial gerrymandering in there um, is not going to be dispositive. You're not going to have this, this same issue. It's really when you're looking at these big systemic structural problems. Can you talk about Justice Earle's decision or the opinion? It was rebanded back to the trial court for some factual determinations. Can you share with us what the concerns were at the Supreme Court and what are the issues that the trial court will have to determine in moving forward? Yes, absolutely. So Justice Earle's, you know, she starts her opinion by walking through all the things that we've just discussed about, about populist sovereignty and about why this is important and why there has to be a limitation placed on a racially gerrymandered General Assembly, um, why there is this special difference with constitutional amendment versus regular legislation, um, and um, kind of 
rebuts a lot of the, the pushback the legislature has um, submitted in its briefs. But then what she goes on to do is she draws the line um, in a slightly different place than where we did. She says, it's not even all constitutional amendments which, which will be um, have to be voided from an illegally constituted general assembly. It's really only constitutional amendments that have to do with these um, structures of power and how democracy is set up or constitutional amendments which are um, specifically aimed at targeting the minorities which were uh, left out because of the racial gerrymander. And so in her opinion, she sets forth three different ways in which a constitutional amendment um, may be, uh, have to be held to be void. And the first is if you have an amendment which is set in place to kind of further entrench the power of the illegal um, majority, then that's, that's not gonna be something which um, <clears throat> we're gonna hold to be constitutional. Second is if you have a amendment which is specifically set to uh, limit the power or and disenfranchise the voters um, who are subject to the, the, the racial gerrymander, then that's not going to um, pass muster either. In other words, those two kind of go to this like, power structure, we're not gonna reorder the power structure um, via the votes of a racially gerrymandered body. And then the third one, it's slightly different. She says, you can't target amendments um, which are going to really harm the uh, minority which was left out of this process because of their the racial gerrymandering. And that makes sense if you think about um, the types of types of issues which wouldn't have been able to get on the ballot if you had had a, a, a legally constituted general assembly, then we're not going to allow those to pass um, just because the general assembly got power through this racial gerrymander. On the flip side, I think you know there were constitutional amendments which were passed during this time which we didn't challenge, like um, the right to hunt and fish. And I don't think that's an amendment which falls into any of these buckets. It, hunting and fishing is not obviously affecting um, our system of democracy or structures of power, and it's really not an amendment that's you know targeted. Um, to hurt or to disadvantage um, the minority, which was left out of, of um, the, the amendment process. You know, one, one of the uh, leaders of the, uh, of the legislature uh, called this a uh, judicial coup. Uh, and uh, I know we're gonna have to take our break uh, right now. But uh, just give some thought uh, to that and to uh, whether this act constitutes a uh, judicial coup that is somehow uh, outside of the regular operation and power of the, uh, of the Supreme Court. Uh, we're taking our next break right now. I uh, want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue uh, this uh, discussion and uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. 
Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review, and again, we are continuing uh, this uh, conversation with Attorney uh, Maya, who is the senior attorney with the uh, Southern Environmental Law Center uh, here in uh, the Triangle. Uh, they've been doing some uh, outstanding uh, work uh, fighting the good fight, uh, particularly in the uh, area of environmental uh, law to make sure that we have uh, clean water and clean air that we don't have to buy uh, in order to uh, to consume. But uh, they were involved along with the uh, uh, Forward Justice and the uh, and other attorneys in representing the North Carolina NAACP in challenging constitutional amendments, which were placed on the uh, 2018 um, ballot uh, for, uh, for people to uh, vote on. And uh, when we ended our last segment, uh, we raised the notion of uh, a judicial coup that members of the General Assembly have claimed that this uh, opinion uh, represents a uh, uh, something that was is unlawful or somehow out of the ordinary for the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court uh, to do. So, uh, Attorney Mario, can you kind of uh, just respond uh, to this notion that there has been a judicial coup uh, that has occurred here in uh, in North Carolina? Absolutely. I, I, it's pretty uh, absurd for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, this is just the role of the court. This is what our Supreme Court does is it declares what the law is, um, and it places a check on the other branches of government. Um, that's how our system works. Um, this legislature seems to, to think that it should be able to run completely without any check, um, and that's essentially what the um, dissent from Justice Berger, who, you know, let's I'll not forget is the son of the um, the leader of the Senate who was the named defendant in this this lawsuit. So to suggest any sort of impropriety on behalf of the minority um, majority, particularly given um, that familial relationship, is is a little bit outrageous. Um, the other thing that I am I'm really struggling with is the. What we've been hearing from legislative leaders is that somehow this court um, 
is invalidating all of the votes of the, the people who voted for the constitutional amendment for, for voter ID. And that's of course wrong for a lot of reasons, but one really important reason that I don't think has been discussed a lot is that um, we in the NAACP filed this case um, before the questions were placed on the ballot and we did absolutely everything we could to stop the questions from being placed on the ballot. And at that time, counsel for the General Assembly said, well, it doesn't matter whether they're on the ballot or not. Um, if later in this case uh, you win, then we'll simply just discount the votes and, and the amendments won't stand. And so that was how what they told the court early in this case, that was their position. Uh, the court let them, you know, go ahead and place the, the questions on the ballot. And now they come back and say, like, how dare you overturn um, these votes, which which we said could be discounted. So it's really just um, outrageous and ridiculous. And I try not to listen um, too much to them. But, you know, I think we should just all be grateful that we have a court that is willing to stand up and do its job and, and place that check because it is so necessary. And of course, we're dealing with what would otherwise be described, I think, as reckless statements uh, made by uh, those uh, individuals who are supposed to be the uh, uh, political leadership of, uh, of our state. And it evidences a, either a lack of uh, understanding of the role of the court or an attempt to uh, minimize uh, the uh, importance and significance of uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, review. Uh, so uh, that's just uh, an aside uh, from me uh, on my uh, privilege uh, that, uh, that I have. Um, and if I can kind of add to that, Irv, I, I, I think it's consistent with the behavior. And I think um, what Attorney Meyer kind of emphasized when, you, when you're thinking about the timing of how things happened, and that these constitutional amendments were not placed right on the ballot until after notice was already given that the legislature, the General Assembly was illegally constituted. And so the General Assembly was trying to do a deliberate in run around a determination that the General Assembly had been unconstitutionally instituted. And so I'm not surprised. Um, I think it's more of the same. I think it's trying to do everything that can be done to try to control power and maintain power. And I think that's why Justice Earl's decision is so crucial. And, and as far as the analysis, it hits it head on because it's not just any constitutional amendment, but it's the constitutional amendment that is specifically designed to maintain the power that was accumulated because of the racial gerrymandering that was done. Which then I think leads to this question about, well, who is ensuring that folks are not able to engage in these behaviors unchallenged. So these are complicated issues. I mean, this is an incredibly long decision. Um, it's challenging for lawyers to get through. Um, it's certainly challenging for lay people to get through. And there are a lot of underhanded things that are done by politicians, by leaders. I mean, this is just kind of part of the history of our country. And you have to have those that are willing to 
you know, get in, you know, the, the weeds and, and just fight the good fight. And so I'd like for both of you to, to share your thoughts on the importance of the NAACP and its role in making sure that folks are, are held to account when they try to undermine democracy. Absolutely. I mean, I can talk in the context of this case, of course, um, Irv has a much more broad um, understanding and history with that question. Um, but I think it it's probably interesting for folks to know that in this case, even though we all knew in the summer of 2018 that this was wrong, you know, everyone in North Carolina knew that this legislature was there illegally. They knew that this was a body that did not represent North Carolinians. And then everyone was outraged by the idea that constitutional amendments could be placed on the ballot by this illegal body, it was still extraordinarily difficult to find um, both groups and attorneys who were willing to stand up and make um, what is really a pretty straightforward legal argument that illegal, an illegally constituted body can't amend our constitution. And you know we have one now, and so we, we everybody can um, appreciate that opinion. But at the time that we were first making that argument, um, even attorneys in the progressive community thought, um, we were a little crazy. That was pushing things a little too far, you know. Um, and I remember the first time I stood up in court, I was so proud to be representing the NAACP and feeling kind of all the weight of the history of that struggle on my shoulders, but also feeling like what a huge fight we had ahead because you felt like everyone in the courtroom was kind of looking at you a little askance of like, you know, who's this crazy lady making this crazy argument? And, um, it has been so great to represent the NAACP through the past four years of this case. And we have really had to persevere through a, um, you know, there were, there were threats at the beginning of the case about impeaching justices that they voted for us that surfaced again earlier this, this year. We had to deal with um, this issue of judicial recusal. Uh, which again, the NAACP had to lead on because a lot of um, attorneys, even great attorneys in our in our state are kind of unwilling to rock the boat. Um, and, and that is what is so great about the NAACP is always being out there as a leader on these issues and just standing up for what is right. Mm. Well, let me just, just, just briefly add to that. Uh, the uh, NAACP, as an organization uh, was formed in uh, 1910. And uh, at that time, uh, African-Americans and uh, racial minorities did not have the right to vote in the state. That uh, vote had been, or that power had been taken away from them and uh, all over the country, uh, African-Americans were encountering uh, problems going to the uh, ballot box to be able to vote. So that was one of the prime missions of the uh, NAACP since its founding. And that is something that continues uh, even uh, today. And this is a perfect example of uh, an effort now to minimize uh, the opportunities uh, to uh, vote, where over 100 years, there's been a fight to ensure uh, that uh, that vote 
power is there even if people don't exercise it. And it was also uh, a, a strong statement uh, that uh, you need to keep on voting. And it, the vote is more important today than it has ever been, uh, mainly because we are in it uh, today. Uh, many of us weren't around in 1910 uh, when this thing started. Uh, so the NAACP has, uh, it will bring those cases that uh, seem unpopular and off the grid uh, in the instance of freedom, justice, and equality of all people, uh, because this is a right that, uh, that impact uh, not only racial minorities, but everyone uh, in the state, because there was a time that even whites could not vote <laughs> in the state of, uh, of North Carolina. And it was because of advocacy for the right to vote that, uh, that uh, they have, uh, they are now empowered to do. So I just uh, raised that. But my question to Attorney Myers is, where, where is the case now? I mean, what happens now uh, with, uh, this, uh, with this opinion? You said it was sent back uh, by the uh, Supreme Court to the trial court. So what is it that we can expect uh, to uh, occur and how long? How long is not a question I'm willing to answer because everything always takes longer than I hope. But um, we have asked, we have already put in our request yesterday to the trial court to hold a status conference um, as soon as possible after the Supreme Court's mandate issues on September 8th. Um, so stay tuned for that. You know, what we, we would hope is at that point we would figure out what does this evidentiary hearing look like? Um, what does the, the fact finding and gathering look like? And, and when will um, the hearing be held? And of course, we filed this case over four years ago. We want it to um, proceed as, as quickly as possible. Now, at the same time, we have heard from um, Senator Berger and um, Speaker Moore that they're, you know, thinking, oh, well, maybe we'll appeal this to the United States Supreme Court. I'm not really sure how that would work um, for a couple of reasons. One, this case is not finished, so it's not a, a final case they can appeal. I assume they'd need some sort of emergency stay. Um, but also this is and always has been a question of state law. Um, and the legislature's attorney and um, us, everybody has always said, this is a unique question of state law, um, and it's for our state um, Supreme Court to decide. Uh, in fact, this case in many ways started because the federal court said, this is an unanswered question of state law. State, state courts, go figure this out. Well, that's now happened. Our state Supreme Court has said what the law is. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine what role the United States Supreme Court would have. Um, having said that, I know we're in sort of strange, strange times and anything is possible. Um, but what I can say is we will, we will continue working um, as hard as we can, as we have done for the past four plus years and won't rest until we have um, put forward everything to get those two constitutional amendments removed from our ballot, uh, removed from our constitution um, for, for once and for all. Can I ask, um, I guess, a follow-up question in terms of the upcoming elections that we have in, in November and how the result of 
those elections will have on our North Carolina Supreme Court and could that have an impact on this case? Two questions there. Uh, the first one, yes, we have two Supreme Court uh, seats which um, are, are up for election. Those are both currently held by uh, Democrats, uh, Justice Irvin and Justice Hudson, both of whom who um, were in the majority in this decision. Um, Justice Irvin running for re-election, uh, Lucy Inman running for Justice Hudson's seat. So of course, uh, <clears throat> it is um, very important that folks get out and vote. I hate that we um, have this political process for justices in North Carolina, but we do. Um, so don't forget your courts. Will the makeup of the court have an impact on this case going forward? I, I just don't know. Um, ordinarily, I would say no. I think the Supreme Court has ruled on what the law is. And really the only questions left are factual questions that the trial court um, has to answer and that those would have very limited review up the chain. At the same time, um, we have heard leaders from um, Republican leadership saying, you've got to vote our, our justices onto the court so that we can overturn um, not just this decision, but decisions about um, gerrymandering and, and other decisions. So it's a little bit of a, of a scary time. Um, the sort of old ways of doing things where we would follow precedent um, don't necessarily seem to apply anymore. Um, but yes, judicial elections, both in the uh, Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeals, are going to be crucially important this November. So please get informed and pay attention to them. Well, thank you so much for that. So we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Kim Meyer, who is a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. And we want to thank you for helping us better understand the recent North Carolina Supreme Court decision that two state constitutional amendments adopted by North Carolina voters in 2018 can be invalidated because the two houses of the state legislature that proposed them included districts that were racially gerrymandered. And of course, we'd like to thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagle.review at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.